This is Coffee and Conversation on blogtalkradio.com slash Robert hyphen Wesley hyphen Branch. It's me and you, and we're on our way to the concert. And guess who we're seeing? Oh. You. <laughs> one of my shows. Yeah, we're going to see you. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. We're going That's to cool. see you. Happy being alive Love those positive vibes With a man who don't mind taking a chance It's Robert Wesley Branch Be well, be encouraged Be inspired Every day Hey, hey, yay Be well, be encouraged Be inspired Every day Hey, hey It's the Robert Wesley Branch Show So let's just take it Let's let's take it Let's walk through it Because you're a singer And you perform And on show day What is your creative process Walk us through your show day. Usually by show day, I've gotten all my little things done, like my manicure, my hair done. Um, I've decided what I'm wearing. Uh, So on that day, I just uh, go through my checklist, make sure that everything is done for me, you know, as far as me getting, being presentable. I check in with my musicians to make sure that they're all on point, that they know um, what time they need to be at the event for sound check. Uh, Check in with sound, make sure that they're setting up very early. Um, That's pretty much it. I go through my vocal exercises and my meditation. And then um, when it's time to get dressed, I get dressed and I'm out of here. Well, I've been with you in several ven- at several venues. Our history goes back a bit. The first time I ever saw yep. you perform was in 1991, which was actually the first time that I ever met you. And I was backstage with you and you were very cool and you were very calm and you were very sweet and you were very relaxed. Although you tell me you're not always like that on show day, but I haven't <laughs> seen that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember that, Robert, and I was uh, pretty relaxed. I think I had been doing that room for a while, and I felt good about it. I felt good about my audience. They were looking forward to it, and um, I felt that they were looking forward to me, and I was looking forward to them. So I'm pretty relaxed in those uh, situations. But if it's, if there's any slight bit of not being sure about what's about to happen, that's when I get stressed. But then that stress all goes away when I hit the stage and the audience is is showing love. Right. Well, that particular night in 1991, I was, I didn't really know you. We had just met that night backstage, actually. And one of the things, as I stood against the wall and sort of watched what was happening in the room, I was really impressed that at one point you called, I don't know if you remember this, but you called this, the background singers back to where you were and you sort of ran them through their paces. 
And it was just so beautiful to hear the blending, to hear the blending of their voices with your voice. And you were listening to them and they were listening to you. And then you all came together. And it was really beautiful. Wow. See, I don't remember that. But I know that I had some amazing background singers, all, all soloists in their own right. And their blend was was amazing. Now... And that was a very nice uh, hotel. I think it was, was it the Omnishorm? I think it was the Omnishorm. Oh, that was the Omnishorm. Yeah, remember the Omnishorm? Oh, this yeah. was in 1991. Yes, you were at the Omnishorm. Okay, I got you. And I, oh, but I, that was a very nice room. But I've also been with you in different venues and where the accommodations were not that lush. Do, does that affect you as you are about to go on stage, whether or not you have a great dressing room or don't have a great dressing room? How does the venue itself affect your state of mind as you begin your performance? Um, it's, for me, it's, it's not having a lush uh, dressing room. It's just having a dressing room. I don't like changing and getting ready in a bathroom. Mm -hmm. So if I have a dressing room that's big enough for me to get into and with my mirrors and my makeup case and my clothing, then I'm fine. Um, And I'm not really affected so much by how luxurious the room is. Mm -hmm. I'm affected by the people who are in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, I could be at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas and have a funky audience, and that wouldn't be good for me. Right. And I could be right here in Tacoma Station, where it's nice and simple, and and have the feel that love, Blue Valley, just feel that love. I'm fine. So it's not so much about the room for me. It's about the people who are in the room and, and the energy that they're putting out. Well, by the time that I was with you at Tacoma Station, we had actually become friends. This was sometime after the Omni Shorm gig where we first met. And we had a good time at Tacoma Station in the in the room where we were, were getting dressed and having just a, a really good time. And again, I, I always experience you right before showtime as very focused, uh-huh. focused, but yeah. and, ver- and very meditative, too. I mean, I don't I don't see you per se meditating, but I can feel that you're in your space. You know, yeah. and I, I often feel that you don't want a whole lot of people around you and a whole lot, whole lot of talking going on, but you seem to really focus in on, a, on what you're about to do. I do. I do. And having you back there with me or somebody who's really close to me, my daughter, my husband, you know, close people who are close to me who really know me, um, I'm comfortable with that, but I'm not... Well, I don't feel good about having people that I don't know stopping in just before a show. It, it just changes my focus. Well, speaking of your daughter, that brings me to yet another time I was with you at Fort DuPont Park. And, yeah. And you were performing there. <laughs> and your daughter now is, how old is Raina? Uh, she's 21. She's 21. So at that time, she was maybe, what, six or seven, eight or nine, maybe? Yeah, she may have been. Yeah, yeah, I think she was. She was this, pretty young. I don't think she was as old as eight or nine. I think, I think she was like she was a toddler. Right, and you told me to watch trying, her. Yeah, 
And she wanted to be where you were. Yeah, and she wanted to run around out there in the crowd, and everybody was sitting in the grass watching the show, and she wanted you to let her cut loose and run (laughs) around. And you were like, "Uh, I don't think so. You've got to stay here with me. Exactly. She thought you were mean. (laughs) She did. And every time I see her now, I just pray that she doesn't remember that and hold that against me. (laughs) She loves you. She loves you. She She's long been over that. Okay.
Tell me, Maisha, when did you first know that you had the gift of song? Hmm. Um, I don't remember not singing in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I came from a family of singers. So we always sang when we'd go to my grandmother's house in Tennessee every summer for family, well, it wasn't even family reunion. It was my mother's sisters and their kids, and she brought her kids down to Tennessee, to Knoxville, Tennessee, to my grandmother's house, and we'd stay there for a good part of the summer. And there was always singing, harmonizing, and I think I was five when I first started singing with the family and learning songs, and then um, I think I sang my first solo in church when I was 12. Wow. And then after that, I, I was sing- a singer. There was a, a special choir in my church called the Coraliers that I really, really looked up to. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, if I could ever sing with them, oh my goodness, that will mean I can sing. And when I auditioned for that group and they let me in, I thought I was going to faint. They sang, you know, they sang Negro spirituals and really close, on point, tight harmonies. Mm -hmm. And that was really something for me to be able to sing with a group like that when I was, I think I was 13 when they allowed me to be in the group. And then I just started singing with other groups and started trios and my life was about singing. In wow. high school I sang for my high school graduation. I was the soloist. Wow. So I knew that I loved singing. I didn't really know that it would be my profession because I moved to DC to go to college to become a lawyer. Really? And yes, that was my dream is to be a lawyer, and I moved here and got into a jazz ensemble that toured all over the place. We went to, like, 10 countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. We did a tour of the Midwest and the West Coast, and we sang all over D.C., and that's when I said, hmm, 
I think I could do this all the time. Mm -hmm. And then that became your focus, pursuing that full time? That became my focus. Um, I can't say I was pursuing it full time at that point. I was in school. I didn't stop going to school. Okay. So I was able to, I was at American University, and uh, I was on a scholarship. So I did go to school every day, but the singing usually happened on the weekends mm -hmm. and then during the evening.
was talking to a performer who told me that for 15 years she didn't even know what people did during the day because (laughs) she would sleep all day wake up and go to the sound check at four have the performance at eight after parties after that get in the bed at four or five o'clock in the morning and slept until the next day and that was her life so you're in school full time you're in school full time. You're singing at night and on the weekends. Which world seemed more attractive to you at that point? Um, at that point, the the singing was was definitely attractive to me because I knew that I wouldn't be in school forever. So I imagined that one day I'd be singing every night, and I'd be out of school, and so I'd have my days free. Mm-hmm. And I ended up totally living that life that you just spoke about. Going to school, I mean, uh, singing at night, hanging out until until the wee hours of the morning, drinking, eating late, partying, getting to bed at 4 or 5 in the morning, sleeping until late in the day, getting up nursing the hangover. (laughs) (laughs) And if I had time, I went shopping, and then it was time to go to the gig again. So that, yeah, that that can become, um, I don't even want to call it a vicious cycle, because it was a fun cycle for me, Mm -hmm. especially when I was living in Bermuda and living in the Southampton Princess for a year. I was doing the same thing. Getting up in the getting up around one o'clock and having breakfast and coffee and 
maybe going into Hamilton and doing a bit of shopping, getting back to my room, and it's time to get ready for the show. Mm-hmm. And then doing the show and going out and partying and being out all night and sleeping late and doing the same thing <laughs> over and over again. But it was fun. So when you were 13 and had been allowed to sing in that group that you really wanted to sing with, who were your musical influences? I understand that your family was musical and that you all did a lot of singing together. But who were you looking to at that time? And who have you continued to look at through the years as an influence on your music and your style? Well, the, those singers in that group were phenomenal singers. So they were my first influences. And my life was kind of built around the church and the church singers and the big conferences and federations that we went to always had phenomenal singers. So I looked up to them first, and then as I got a little older, I started looking up to Diana Ross and the Supremes, Dionne Warwick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those Motown singers were mm-hmm. the ones that I listened to and looked up to. Mm-hmm. So the mo- And as I got a little older, I listened to Phyllis Hyman, and oh my goodness, she was mine. Phyllis Heim and Dean Karn were two singers that I listened to that I felt I felt that their style was similar to mine, or my mm-hmm. style of singing was similar to theirs. My tone of voice was similar to theirs. So I knew all of their stuff. Mm-hmm. I would just lay on the floor and put the album on <laughs> the wax the, the wax album the vinyl baby the album on and just lay back with my eyes closed and just listen mm. and sing and listen and sing until I was blue in the face mm, 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 mm.
Speaking of your parents, how did they react to your wanting to pursue a life as a singer? Unfortunately, I lost my dad while I was in college, my first year of college, but he knew that I wanted to sing professionally, mm-hmm. and I believe that he would have been very supportive. Um, I remember standing in Mr. Henry's and, and receiving a standing ovation and just feeling Daddy's presence and feeling his smile and just knowing how proud he was. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother was very supportive. Um, they they taught us to pursue our dreams. They didn't teach us to, to live the life they wanted us to live. They mm-hmm. gave us a foundation, but they taught us to pursue our own dreams. So when you have a dream like that, and you, you didn't really express it as a dream, but when you have goals and you want to are hoping to become something in your life, and then you have a moment like that at Mr. Henry's where everyone's standing and applauding the gift that God has given you, does it feel like a dream come true, or do you still feel like there are higher mountains to climb, or both? For me, it felt like a dream come true, because I always determined what success was for me. I didn't let anybody else determine what was success for me. And step by step, I made set my goals. And when I reached it, whatever it was, I felt good that I had reached that goal. And one goal when I first started singing was to be able to travel worldwide as a singer. And I did that. Mm-hmm. And then I had a goal to become a jingle singer. And I sent my tapes out to all the studios in D.C. Back in the day, that worked, and I became a jingle singer. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then I set a goal to be able to make a living as a singer, not have to do any other work, nothing but singing. And when I reached that goal back in the 80s, I was satisfied. I, I don't think I ever aspired to become a household name. I don't think I, it wasn't because I didn't have the confidence. It just wasn't something that was important to me. Now, granted, had that happened, it would have been wonderful. I'm sure I would have enjoyed uh, becoming famous on that level. But I reached the goals that I set for myself. Mm-hmm. And being able to make a living as a singer gave me the status of being a professional singer, because that was my profession. So what's next for you? What do you want to accomplish musically that you may not have done yet? I have not recorded an album. Mm-hmm. I think that I need to record an album before I leave the planet. So that's That's what I'm going to do.
Can you share with us, we've been talking pretty upbeat about the industry and the more positive aspects of it, but can you share any observations, life lessons that you've accumulated along the way as you've seen some of the not so positive aspects of this industry play out over the years? I've seen people allow their their own frustrations and um, disappointments lead them to becoming consumed in alcohol and drugs. And I can't say I haven't done those things. I've certainly done my share of drinking. Mm-hmm. I've been blessed not to have gotten uh, consumed in the drug scene, but I've seen that take people down, mm-hmm. and and that's that's a sad aspect. Fame and the pursuit of fame, and you made it very clear earlier that not everybody is pursuing fame; they're just pursuing their gift. But I have certainly witnessed, because this media entertainment industry is the only industry I've worked in in my adult life, and I have witnessed the pursuit of fame cause people to turn to drugs and alcohol when they don't receive the level of fame that they are aspiring to. I have even seen that with famous people (laughs) who... Yeah, who are famous. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, uh, because there are so, there's so much um, disappointment that comes with in this industry. I mean, not, uh, there, there are disappointments that come with this business. Mm-hmm. There's disappointment, there's rejection, there are, um, there's gossip and tabloids and Rumors that go around that are not true. Mm-hmm. There are slow periods. There are highs and lows, and the highs can be really high, but the lows can be really low. Mm-hmm. And um, those are the times that I think that people fall into the abyss and and do some things that they didn't plan to do. When you pay your money to go to a concert, whether it be a huge venue or a smaller venue, you your expectation as a consumer is that the artist that you're paying for shows up and gives their all. And that's a realistic expectation, but many people have no idea and, and probably don't care what that person has gone through all day. They don't care if you have a cold. They don't care if you're having a bad day. They don't no, care no, about the personal don't. things going on in your life. They just no. expect you to show up and be fabulous every single time they pay for you. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that people who are not in this business, that's one of the things they don't understand. They see it as all fun and partying and, and just all having a good, all about a good time. And it's not always that. Sometimes I remember being sick, so sick that I could hardly stand up. Mm-hmm. And I knew that people had paid their money to see me. And I had to go out there and do it anyway. One night at, at Blues Alley with Norman Connors, mm-hmm. we did the first set. And the second set, Norman was sick. He was laying on the couch in the dressing room, and he had to go on. 
one night I was at Blue Valley by myself, and I was fine the first set, but the second set I was sick. Mm. But I had to go on anyway because the audience who's paid their money, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear, well, she's not feeling well. She, she won't be out tonight. I think that you just have to go deep within and just pull it out. From wherever you have to get it from, you have to pull it out and give it. Hey, what's up, y'all? Welcome to the land of peace, love, hits, and hugs. The place where nonviolence and harmony reign. Maisha and the Hip Huggers, and we're kicking this song out to you and all the peeps of the world. You know, we make it turn. We make it move. We make it go. Are you ready, beautiful people? You ready, Juju? Hey, Sugar Bear, let's hit it. Yeah. 
We're done. It's over. We've seen Maisha. We've experienced her music. We've heard her talk. We've seen her performance. We're in the car going home now. What do you want that post-show discussion to be about what folks just experienced? That was a bad show. Oh, they screwed <laughs> down. Oh, hell yeah. I can't wait to see them again. Yeah. <laughs> that's, what I want. that's what I want them to say. That's the car ride home. Yes. Well, my- oh, did you see what she did? Did you hear that? Oh, man. They are like that. <laughs> <laughs> you notice I say they because... On stage, we're a group. It's not, I don't see it as just being about me. Mm-hmm. It's about all of us coming together and presenting a gift to the audience. Mm-hmm. Well, Maisha, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you. I thank you for sharing part of your day with us and letting me. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Be a part of the conversation. We welcome your views. The Robert Wesley Brand Show, Saturdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. Join Robert, Maisha, Fred, Tim, Michelle, Dante, and Devika weekly for a discourse on things that affect you. Only on blogtalkradio.com. This show is produced by Robert Wesley Branch Inspired Media.